This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week we are at the year 2011, along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2011. We look at the case for putting Joe Cocker into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, plus our Spotlight Museum is the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 2011. It was the year that Steven Tyler joined American Idol as a judge, Simon Cowell brought his X-Factor TV show to America, and everyone from Christina Aguilera to American Idol singers all forgot the words to the national anthem at major sporting events. J-Lo and Mark Anthony broke up. U2 had the biggest grossing concert tour of all time up to that point with $736 million made that lasted until Ed Sheeran broke the record a decade later. Lady Gaga became the first to sell over 1 million downloads in the first week when her album Born This Way came out. Amazon Music priced it at $0.99, which helped that download total quite a bit. A windstorm made a stage collapse at the Indiana State Fair moments before the band Sugarland was supposed to be on. Michael Jackson's doctor, Conrad Murray, was found guilty of manslaughter in the singer's death in 2009. 17-year-old Justin Bieber was sued by a woman who claimed that he was her baby's father. Bieber won the lawsuit. 2011 was the year of Adele as her album 21 was the biggest selling album that year. Other big-selling albums were Lady Gaga's Born This Way, Lil Wayne's The Carter Four, Jason Aldean's My Kind of Party, Mumford & Sons' Sigh No More, Drake's Take Care, Frank Ocean's Nostalgia Ultra, Jay-Z and Kanye West's Watch the Throne, and Lady A, then known as Lady Antebellum, with their album Own the Night. Two Christmas albums round out the top ten, Michael Bublé's Christmas and Justin Bieber's Under the Mistletoe. Adele's Rollin' in the Deep was the biggest song for the year. Katy Perry hit number one in 2011 with Fireworks, E.T., and Last Friday Night. Coupled with two other songs in 2010 that went to the top, Katy became the first female artist to have five number one singles from one album. Michael Jackson was the first overall artist to do it, by the way, with the album Bad back in the 1980s. Other big hits were LMFAO with Party Rock Anthem, Pitbull, Neo, and Afrojack with Give Me Everything, Bruno Mars with Grenade and also his hit Just The Way You Are, CeeLo Green with Forget You, which was originally called something else with an F, four letters, you can figure it out, ends with a K. Nicki Minaj with Super Bass, Maroon 5 and Christina Aguilera with Moves Like Jagger, and the Black Eyed Peas with Just Can't Get Enough. However, the biggest viral hit of the year was 14-year-old singer Rebecca Black's earworm of a song, Friday. 
It's Friday, Friday, etc., etc. In country music, Brad Paisley had one of the biggest selling and most critically acclaimed albums with This Is Country Music. Other big albums were by Eric Church, Luke Bryan, Miranda Lambert, Pistol Lannies, Blake Shelton, Hunter Hayes, Justin Moore, Jake Owen, Lady Antebellum, or Lady A if you prefer, Emmylou Harris, Chris Young, and Sonny Sweeney. On the singles front, Blake Shelton had the top two singles, while Lady A had two of the top 15 songs, and the Zac Brown Band had three songs in the top 15 for the year. Other big singles artists were Jason Aldean, Tim McGraw, Kenny Chesney, Luke Bryan, Rodney Atkins, Jake Owen, Sarah Evans, and Miranda Lambert. In hip-hop, Jay-Z and Kanye West Watch the Throne was one of the biggest-selling hip-hop albums of the year. Other big albums were released by Lil Wayne, Drake, Young Jeezy, J. Cole, Lupe Fiasco, Wiz Khalifa, Bad Meets Evil, Whale, and Mac Miller. Singles-wise, Wiz Khalifa's Black and Yellow was the biggest single. Other big singles were by Lil Wayne, Nicki Minaj, Dr. Dre, Bad Meets Evil, Chris Brown, B.O.B., DJ Khaled, Jay-Z and Kanye, and Flo Rida. The hip-hop collective Odd Future burst onto the scene in 2011 with Tyler the Creator, Earl Sweatshirt, and Left Brain. 2011 was the year that legit EDM artists dominated the dance charts. Sure, you still had the Jennifer Lopez's, the LMFAOs, the Flow Riders, and the Pitbulls out there, but you also had classic EDM tracks that are considered some of the best songs of the past decade. For instance, Avicii's Levels is considered the greatest EDM track ever released by a lot of EDM fans, and that one was huge in 2011. There was also David Guetta and Sia's classic stadium anthem, Titanium. Rihanna got with Calvin Harris and produced We Found Love, which still rocks the festival grounds. The dubstep revolution kicked into high gear with groups like Nervo getting big, along with Skrillex's Bangarang EP. Swedish House Mafia had saved the world, and then they got together with Knife Party to put out Antidote. Mumbaton became a thing in 2011 as well. DJ Fresh's drum and bass classic Louder hit number one on the charts as well. And other artists who were hot in 2011 included Nicky Romero, Nadia Ali, Benny Benazi, Katie B, Chase and Status, Laidback Luke and Steve Aoki, and K-pop dance group 2NE1, long before there was Blackpink and BTS. EDM became such a big thing that the huge Las Vegas club started booking EDM DJs and producers to play, which started a whole new era in Vegas partying. The top 10 DJs, according to DJ Mag with their Top 100 DJs poll, were David Guetta, Armin Van Buren, Tiesto, Dead Mouse, Above and Beyond, Avicii, Afrojack, Dash Berlin, Marcus Schultz, and the Swedish House Mafia. In Latin music, the big artists of the year were Prince Royce, who had a huge year with the best-selling self-titled album and best-selling single, Corazon Sin Cara. Also, there was Christian Castro, Mana, Shakira, Enrique Iglesias, Wizened Ayandel, Camila, 
Ricky Martin, Don Omar, and Los Bucas. Musicals that opened on Broadway, including revivals, included Godspell, Anything Goes, An Evening with Patti Lapone and Mandy Patinkin, Baby It's You, Hair, Follies, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, Hugh Jackman, Back on Broadway, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, The Musical, Sister Act, The Book of Mormon, and Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark, which held the distinction of being the musical people went to in order to see if anybody was going to get hurt at it, as multiple performers had injuries from doing the stunts in the show. Musical films that came out in 2011 included a reboot of Footloose, Glee, the 3D concert movie, The Muppets, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Chipwrecked, Country Strong, and the animated movies uh, Monster in Paris, Happy Feet 2, Rio, Winnie the Pooh, and Phineas and Ferb Across the Second Dimension. Bands that formed in 2011 included Adrenaline Mob, Art of Anarchy, Banks and Steels, Big Talk, Chris Robinson, Brotherhood, Crosses, Deep Valley, DIIV, The Downtown Boys, Seconds of Summer, and Pentatonics. Bands that disbanded before, of course, their inevitable reunions or just simply announced their hiatuses included LCD Sound System, Nick Jonas and the Administration, The Jonas Brothers, The Black Eyed Peas, Disturbed, Good Charlotte, R.E.M., Sonic Youth, Velvet Revolver, She Daisy, and The White Stripes. Bands that got back together in 2011 included Ben Folds 5, Blink-182, Evanescence, Gym Class Heroes, O-Town, and System of a Down. A lot of artists passed away in 2011. They included singers Amy Winehouse, Jerry Rafferty, Margaret Whiting, Andrew Gold, James O'Gwyn, Gladys Horton of the Marvelettes, Don Rondo, Joe Arroyo, Ray Hur and John Larson of the Ides of March, Fasundo Cabral, Bo Dollar, St. Clair Lee of the Hughes Corporation, Lolita Holloway, Ken Arsipowski of Randy and the Rainbows, Rosetta Johnson, Gil Scott Heron, Benny Spellman, Janie Lane of Warrant, Fred Farron of the Arbors, Kay Arman, Andrea True, Ronald Mosley of Ruby and the Romantics, Bob Flanagan of the Four Freshmen, Solvi Wang, Cesaria Evora, and Polly Styrene of X-Ray Specs, folk singer Bort Eric Thorson, opera singer Cornell McNeil, record producers Bobby Robinson, Don Kirshner, along with Sugar Hill Record Executive, who was behind hip-hop's first big hit, Rapper's Delight, Sylvia Robinson. Also, singer-songwriters Debbie Friedman, Bobby Poe, Charlie Levin of the Levin Brothers, Marvin Cease, Gene Dinning of the Dinning Sisters, Phoebe Snow, Robert Grill of the Grassroots, Gene McDaniels, Dan Peek of America, Coco Robichaux, Dobie Gray, Sean Bonnewell of The Music Machine, Hilde Heltberg, and Vesta Williams, entertainers Georgia Carroll and Betty Garrett, composers Tony Geis, John Barry, Russell Garcia, John Strauss, Eddie Brandt, Peter Lieberson, Jagat Singh, and Milton Babbitt, 
trumpet player Barry Lee Hall Jr., country music singers Doc Williams, Ferlin Husky, Mel McDaniel, Jack Barlow, Billy Grammer, Johnny Country Mathis of Jimmy and Johnny, and Billy Joe Spears, violinist Emmanuel Vardy, drummers Eddie Serrato of Question Mark and the Mysterians, Rick Koontz of the Grassroots, Frankie Toller of the Allman Brothers Band, Don Wood of the Gants, Scott Columbus and Eddie Marshall, conductor Blanche Honiger Moise, musicians David Shapiro, Eddie Kirkland, Jimmy Norman, Bob Burnett of the Highwaymen, Percussionist Ralph McDonald, Evin Solas, and Gary Moore. Jazz bassist Charles Fambro. Bassist Mark Tulin of the Electric Prunes. Mike Starr of Alice in Chains. Gerard Smith of TV on the Radio. Mikey Welsh of Weezer. And Harold Johnson. Rappers Nate Dogg and Heavy D. Songwriters Eddie Snyder, Hugh Martin, and Jerry Lieber. Big band leaders Henry Jerome and Oren Tucker. Guitarist Tom King of The Outsiders. Paul Moutian and Bill Tapia. Organist Odell Brown. Cellist Bernard Greenhouse, saxophonist Clarence Clemens of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, and Frank Foster, along with jazz pianist Ray Bryant, pianist Pinetop Perkins, Roger Williams, Johnny Raducanu, George Shearing, and Eileen Neagard Riesnias, along with keyboardist Joel DiGregorio of the Charlie Daniels Band. Dag Stoke of TNT, along with DJ, host of the British TV music show Top of the Pops, and also accused pedophile Jimmy Seville. Of course, let us also not forget the death of Apple CEO and visionary Steve Jobs, the man who helped to spearhead three pieces of technology that helped change music forever, for better or for worse, the iPod, the iPhone, and iTunes. In awards for the music of 2011, Adele took the awards for Best Album for 21 and Song and Record of the Year for Rolling in the Deep at the Grammy Awards. Best New Artist Grammy winner, however, was a shocker as jazz artist Esperanza Spaulding took home Best New Artist over Justin Bieber, Drake, Florence and the Machine, and Mumford and Sons. Adele and Taylor Swift won the most awards at the American Music Awards, with Taylor winning Artist of the Year. Lady Gaga won Video of the Year at the MTV Video Music Awards for the song Born This Way. That was also the ceremony where Beyonce announced her pregnancy by showing her baby bump during her performance. Adele won Artist of the Year at the Billboard Music Awards. Chris Brown won Album of the Year at the Soul Train Music Awards. Lady Gaga's Born This Way won Favorite Album, and Katy Perry and Kanye's song E.T. won Favorite Song at the People's Choice Awards. Taylor Swift won Entertainer of the Year at the Country Music Association Awards, while Luke Bryan won Entertainer of the Year at the Academy of Country Music Awards. Adele won Best British Album for 21, and One Direction won Best Song for What Makes You Beautiful at the Brit Awards. Michael Bublé's Christmas won Best Album at the Juno Awards. Boy and Bear won Album of the Year for Moonfire, and Got Ye and Kimbra won Song of the Year for Somebody That I Used to Know at the Aria Music Awards. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held in Germany that year, Eli and Nikki from Azerbaijan won for the song Running Scared. 
At the Tony Awards, The Book of Mormon won Best Musical, and Anything Goes won Best Revival of a Musical. Musically, at the Academy Awards, Man or Muppet from The Muppets won Best Original Song, while The Artist won Best Original Film Score, adding to The Artist's wins that night as the movie won five awards, including Best Picture. Zhu Long's opera, Madame Whitesnake, won the Pulitzer Prize for Music. P.J. Harvey won the Mercury Music Prize, becoming the first artist to win the award twice, having first won it in 2001. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony was held on March 4, 2011 at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. At the ceremony, the hall inducted Leon Russell into a new category called the Award for Musical Excellence. That category replaced the Sidemen category and, quote, honors those musicians, producers, and others who have spent their careers out of the spotlight working with major artists on various parts of their recording and live careers, end quote. Electra Records founder Jack Holzman and record producer Art Roop were inducted into the non-performers category. And in the performers category, the hall inducted Darlene Love, Neil Diamond, Dr. John, Tom Waits, and this next group. The band and person Alice Cooper have made 28 albums so far, 11 live albums, and 21 compilation albums. They've been nominated for two Grammy Awards and have sold over 50 million records to date. Now, you may be a little confused as to why I said the band and person Alice Cooper. That's because, much like Marilyn Manson and Charday, the band took their name from their lead singer, or, in this particular case, it was the other way around. The man, Alice Cooper, was born Vincent Damon Fernier on February 4, 1948, in Detroit, Michigan. His family moved to Phoenix, Arizona when he was in middle school. He started out in high school playing in a talent show with his track and field cross-country running teammates, Glenn Buxton, Dennis Dunaway, John Tatum, and John Spear, as a group calling itself the Earwigs, playing mainly Beatles parodies. After a while, they decided to get serious about being a real band, so they named their rock group The Spiders and started playing different gigs in the Phoenix, Arizona club scene, even though they were still in high school. And no, they were not playing those Beatles parodies at that point. Once they were out of high school, John Tatum left the group, so he was replaced by Michael Bruce. The band started to venture out to Los Angeles, California to play gigs, and during this point, they called themselves Nas, with two Zs at the end. John Spear also left the group at this time and was replaced by Neil Smith. And it is this lineup, with Fernier, Buxton, Bruce, Dunaway, and Smith, that stayed together until the band's initial breakup in 1974 and is the lineup that it has been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The year after they started calling themselves Nas, they found out that Todd Rundgren already had a band with the same name, so the guys needed to come up with a new name. The urban myth is that the band came up with the name Alice Cooper from playing around with a Ouija board. 
As Vincent said in an interview, the band actually came up with a gimmicky name that was sweet and wholesome to contrast it with their hard shock rock image, and thus Alice Cooper, the band, was born. Another rumor was that they took the name from the character Alice on the TV show Mayberry RFD. However, people started calling Vincent Alice Cooper, and it got to the point where so many people called him Alice that he decided to legally change his name from Vincent Fournier to Alice Cooper after the band's initial breakup. It also helped him to not have any legal issues with using the name when he started a solo career. Another urban myth should probably be dispelled. During the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival concert in 1969, for one reason or another, chickens got loose at the venue and one of those chickens got on stage. Alice took the chicken and tossed it into the air because he thought that chickens could fly because, of course, chickens have wings. For the record, chickens nor turkeys, that's a WKRP in Cincinnati reference, cannot fly, which Alice found out when the chicken dropped into the front section. That was the wheelchair section of the stage, and the poor chicken was ripped to shreds. That's the reality of what happened. What did the fake news media report? That Alice had ripped the head off the chicken and drank its blood. Yeah, and you thought QAnon was weird. Uh, he was actually later told to not deny the story because it kind of fit the image of the band at that point. Plus, it made for a much better story than the truth anyway, so there you go. It was during the making of the first album that Alice began to hone his shock rock stage act. His act combined vaudeville with a horror aspect, which made him a true pioneer in stage presence. As time went on and as more money was made available to him for his shows, he shocked his audience by having snakes, swords, guillotines, and electric chairs as part of his act. In fact, he is known as the godfather of shock rock. In 1968, music manager Shep Gordon approached the band after watching them play a gig in Los Angeles at which the audience hated them so much that most of them left in the first 10 minutes. While the band thought that they had played a bad gig, Gordon actually thought that the shock rock act could work to the band's benefit. He got them in touch with Frank Zappa, who was starting a record label at that point. Frank told them to come by his place at 7 o'clock for an audition. The band thought that he meant 7 in the morning and accidentally woke Frank up. Frank was so impressed that the band was willing to actually play shock rock music at 7 in the morning that he signed them to a three-record deal. The first two albums did okay, but not great, but they were mainly psychedelic rock. The band decided to go back to the Midwest to record their third album and make it more of a hard rock style. The album that came from that... Love It to Death became a big hit, riding the success of their first hit single, I'm 18. The group followed up Love It to Death with their album Killer. They also went out on tour, and soon the tours became really elaborate, but they also made the band's reputation. They also, by the way, ended up breaking up the band. 
See, after Killer and three more albums, 1972's School's Out, 1973's Billion Dollar Babies, and Muscle of Love, with hits like School's Out, No More Mr. Nice Guy, Elected, and Teenage Lament 74, combined with nonstop touring, the band needed a break, desperately. After that, they just decided to not get back together after the break. That was all. Alice the Man, however, decided to keep going, and he got a new backup band together, took the Alice Cooper band name as his own name, and recorded as a solo act. And his solo career was extremely successful with hits from the 70s through to the 90s, with songs like Poison, Feed My Frankenstein, How You Gonna See Me Now, You and Me, Only Women Bleed, and many more. The rest of the guys did one album together, then they did their own things. And the band has actually gotten back together sporadically with the original lineup over the decades. One person, though, has always been missing, unfortunately. Glenn Buxton, who sadly passed away from viral pneumonia in 1997. Presented for induction by rocker and Hollywood producer and director Rob Zombie... Vincent Fournier, a.k.a. Alice Cooper, Glenn Buxton, Dennis Dunaway, Michael Bruce, and Neil Smith, the group Alice Cooper, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, class of 2011, and we have put their music onto this week's podcast playlist, the link to which is in the show notes. Before we go any further, we'd like to tell you that there is now a Music History In-Depth podcast where we go more in-depth on a few of the events that happened in music history for that particular week. The Music History In-Depth podcast drops every Tuesday on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast from, as does our Music History Today podcast, which goes over the daily events in music history. The Music History Today podcast drops daily, including weekends, on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to this podcast. This week, we're going to look at the case for putting Joe Cocker into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Let's check out the stats. So, as we always do... To the tale of the tape we go. Joe Cocker released 22 studio albums, 9 live albums, and 14 compilation albums. Of those, 5 hit the top 40 in America, with 1970's live album Mad Dog and Englishmen hitting number 2, but no other top 10s. In Joe's native United Kingdom, 9 hit the top 40, with 3 hitting the top 10. Joe also released 68 singles. Of those, nine hit the top 40 in America, with three of those hitting the top 10. 1975's hit You Are So Beautiful hit number 5. 1970's The Letter hit number 7. And 1982's duet with Jennifer Warren's Up Where We Belong from the hit movie An Officer and a Gentleman, starring Richard Gere, Deborah Winger, and in his Academy Award-winning performance, Louis Gossett Jr. Up Where We Belong won the Academy Award, by the way, for Best Song, and also won Joe Cocker a Grammy Award. 
In the UK, though, Joe had nine songs hit the top 40, with three of those nine hitting the top 10, including 1968's iconic cover version of the Beatles hit With a Little Help From My Friends, which hit number one. Joe's version was also the theme, by the way, to the original version of the TV show The Wonder Years, which starred Fred Savage as Kevin Arnold with the voice narration of Daniel Stern, who was Joe Pesci's burglar partner in the original Home Alone movies. little more trivia for you. Some of Joe's best-known songs that weren't big hits included You Can Leave Your Hat On from the 1986 movie Nine and a Half Weeks starring Kim Basinger and Mickey Rourke, along with the song Unchain My Heart and Feeling All Right, which has been used in a ton of commercials whether you knew it or not. Joe Cocker was known for his gravelly voice, blues rock style, and the way that he twisted his body when he sang, which was famously parodied by John Belushi in a sketch on Saturday Night Live. Joe influenced many artists with his performances and vocal energy, including Rod Stewart, Bruce Springsteen, Lenny Kravitz, Adele, Sam Smith, Amy Winehouse, John Fogarty, Hozier, Dave Grohl, Jack White, Marcus Mumford, Billy Corgan, Ryan Adams, Leon Bridges, John Legend, and Jason Isbell. Joe has also been called one of the 100 greatest singers of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. So, after all of this, with so much commercial success and star power influence, why hasn't Joe Cocker been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by now? Good question! Even Billy Joel tried to get Joe inducted in 2014 before Joe sadly passed away from lung cancer, but even that didn't work. Perhaps former board member Jan Wenner had something against Joe and kept him out. Winner, however, has since been ousted within the last year or so, so I think that the logjam against some of these artists will now begin to break. Anyway, you slice it, though, Joe Cocker finally deserves to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and to prove it, we have also put his music onto this week's podcast playlist. And like I said before, the link to that playlist is in the show notes. This week's Spotlight is going to focus on a museum. This museum is not strictly about music, though. The Smithsonian National Museum of American History is located on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. The museum is one of a number of Smithsonian museums on the National Mall. It's normally open every single day, except for Christmas, from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Admission, by the way, is free, after all. Your tax dollars paid for it. This museum concentrates on American history, specifically concerning military history, cultural history, and scientific history. There's tons of cultural artifacts that are in the museum's collection, including Archie Bunker's chair from the TV show All in the Family, one of the C-3PO and R2-D2 robots from Star Wars, and the Fonz's leather jacket from Happy Days. Musically, the museum has one of Prince's guitars and one of Tito Puente's percussion setups. 
one of the items in the museum's collection is attached to what we are going to talk about next. Let us talk about a musical movie that owes its being made to a Disney movie and was also plagued with problems. A lot of problems. For starters, this movie musical had at least 18 different writers touching its script, yet only three received the official writing credit. It went through numerous cast changes, including turning down two Hollywood legends, and it barely made any money for its studio. Yet, it was a critical success, was up for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, and later found success in pop culture status when it started getting played on television. This movie was originally a silent movie back in 1910, but the sound version was only greenlit by its studio, MGM, because of the earlier success of Disney's animated movie, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which proved that audiences would go see movies based on children's books. The original script for the movie was pretty dark, and MGM absolutely hated it. They gave it to three different writers to come up with something different, but didn't tell the writers that each of them were writing the screenplay. Then, they took the best ideas, flushed out the characters, gave it to a bunch more writers to punch up the script, and finally, they had a working script to work with. Out of all of those writers, by the way, only three of them received official credit for the screenplay. Noel Langley, Florence Ryerson, and Edgar Allan Wolfe. Next up came the casting. Hollywood legend W.C. Fields had a great role lined up in it, but couldn't agree on the money, so he was dropped. Another Hollywood legend, Shirley Temple, was supposedly up for the main role, but things didn't work out there either. Actress Deanna Durbin was also up for the main role, but was dropped. Most think it was because her singing style was very operatic. Buddy Ebsen, who later found fame on television in the TV shows Barnaby Jones and also the Beverly Hillbillies, was up for a role but was forced out when another actor who already had the role in the movie, Ray Bolger, wanted Buddy's role instead. Jack Haley rounded out the main cast once Bolger snagged the other role. Even the directing had problems. There were actually four directors during production, although Victor Fleming receives the directing credit because it was really his vision. Finally, on August 25th, 1939, after all of that, the movie was released. It made just over $3 million, which is just under $65 million in today's money. However, it had a movie budget of $2.777 million, or just over $60 million in today's money, so in actuality, it really netted less than $5 million in today's money. Listen, at least it got to the break-even point and made a little extra on the side. Most movies don't even do that, especially back in those days. However, the movie was a critical success and went up for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, where it was mowed down, unfortunately, by a juggernaut of a movie that year called Gone with the Wind. 
Fun fact, by the way, Gone with the Wind is actually the biggest movie of all time. If you base the number on the number of movie tickets sold, not amount of money made, because, of course, the amount of money switches depending on inflation. Gone with the Wind's movie ticket sales actually beat out all of the Star Wars movies, Titanic, Avatar, and the Avengers movies, just for the record. Let's get back to our main movie, though, because that was not actually the end of its run. See, in 1956, CBS aired the movie on television. It was so popular that for decades they aired it on television every single year, so much so that it's now considered a pop culture classic, along with other movies that bombed at the box office that found life on television afterwards, like It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Story. This particular movie is now actually part of the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. The movie that had W.C. Fields originally as The Wizard, and that role ended up going to Frank Morgan. Shirley Temple, then Deanna Durbin, had the role of Dorothy until they couldn't come up with the money or the voice just wasn't right. The role eventually ended up going to Judy Garland in a breakout performance. Ray Bulger, who originally had the role of the Tin Man, but wanted the role of the Scarecrow so badly that he forced out Buddy Ebsen, who actually had the role and was far more gracious about it than I think I would have been just saying. The movie that had witches, ruby slippers, and also gave munchkins lifelong employment by getting paid to be seen at sci-fi conventions. The musical movie The Wizard of Oz premiered in wide release on August 25, 1939, and one pair of the famous ruby slippers that Judy Garland wore is in the collection of the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C., and should you like to enjoy the original soundtrack to that movie, we've put the original soundtrack starring Judy Garland onto this week's podcast playlist. You know where you can find it. It's in the show notes. The Music Halls of Fame podcast is part of the Music History Today network, which can be found under Music History Today on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts from, and also on our YouTube page under Music History Today. Thank you very much for listening.